As we think about Mother's Day today, as we celebrate it, I thought it might be fun to play a little Facebook games this week. I went on Facebook and I posed this question to people on Facebook. Uh, If you're a parent, what is the most surprising or ridiculous thing that you have had to tell your children to stop doing? So here's a few, just a few of the best. Some of them weren't appropriate, so... (laughs) If you follow me, you can always hop on Facebook and see what I'm talking about, but I'm not going to put it up this morning. So we're talking unexpected parenting phrases, the craziest phrases that have come out of a parent's mouth. Get your tongue out of your nose. (laughs) You got to give that kid credit. He's cut out the middleman, no finger needed, just get right up in there. That's impressive. Uh, Don't lick your armpit. There's actually... (laughs) There's a lot of tongue-related ones. I'm, I'm really quite surprised at how many involved the tongue. Here's another. Sweetie, what have we said about licking the bathroom wall? <laughs> Julie and I actually talked about this. We realized there is a market for someone to write a parenting book that is just about training your child to use his or her tongue appropriately. <laughs> it's a big deal. We spend a lot of time on that one. The mouth in general. People aren't food. Stop putting your sister in your mouth. That, that isn't ours, but I know we said that at some point. Um, snot is not a condiment. That's helpful advice. <laughs> helpful advice. All been there. All been there. Here's another helpful advice. Grub worms want to be in the ground, not in the car. Um, that's common. Find things in the car all the time. Uh, here's another one. If you want to carry those toys around, get a bag. Don't put them in your underwear. <laughs> underwear for most kids. It feels like a bag. So, you know, they're just going to fill it. Uh, but that's, that's actually not the worst thing that they do with underwear. If you're going to wear your undies on your head, please get a clean pair. <laughs> I feel for this mom because we have been there. Um, kids will put their underwear on their heads, on their siblings' heads, in their mouth. Our kids actually went through a phase when they got rid of all their stuffed animals and wanted to sleep at night snuggling all of their underwear. Seriously, all of it. And so um, after they did that for a while, I just realized, you know what? Victory for parents is that they grab clean underwear. That's enough. I don't care what you do with the underwear. As long as it's clean, please, Lord, let it be clean. So parents, there's a lot of things that you say as you raise your kids that you never expected to say. Julie and I marvel at the words that come out of our mouths that we just never anticipated would be things we would need to say. There's so many crazy, ridiculous, absurd things that parents have to deal with on a regular basis. And most of that craziness falls to moms because they spend the the brunt of the time with these crazy kids running around. I I think what this reminds us is that whether you realize it or not, parenting is incredibly hard. Whether you went into parenting knowing that or not, parenting is incredibly hard, especially for moms. It's incredibly demanding. It's, It's incredibly difficult to parent children. Parenting is incredibly hard. I can't change that reality. What I hope to do, though, this morning, my goal this morning is maybe, just maybe, to make parenting a little bit easier. That's my hope this morning. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Goal this morning is maybe just to make parenting a little bit easier for you. We're going to look at Jesus' words in John chapter 8. Famous passage, a very significant passage. Chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Let's look at what... We have from Jesus, starting in verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. 
Jump down to verse 36. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus promises freedom. It says that anyone who, who knows truth from Jesus, who knows the truth of God contained in his word, will be free, will be free indeed. That's an incredible promise that so many followers of Jesus are not experiencing in their day-to-day lives. There's so many of us who are, are weighed down. We're not living lives of freedom, we're living lives of burden. And that's not just true for parents, not just true for moms and dads, but students and singles and, and married couples without kids and empty nesters. So many of us are going through life without the freedom that Jesus promised. We're going through life weighed down by burdens. They just sit on our shoulders. You came and brought them in here with you this morning. What I want to do this morning is I want to give you truth, which Jesus talks about in that passage. I want to give you truth that can help free you from four of the most common burdens that Christians try to carry through life. Burdens that parents carry, burdens that all of us carry. This morning we're going to talk about the burdens of comparison, of fear, of guilt, and of busyness. Those four burdens, I would venture to say that every one of us in this room is carrying at least one of those. We're going to We're going to wrestle with those four burdens, comparisons, fear, guilt, and busyness. We're going to identify the lie that drives that burden, that that empowers that burden, and then we're going to discover truth from God's word that can set you free. Okay, so let's jump right in. The first burden that we're going to look at this morning is the burden of comparison. Jesus wants to free you from the burden of comparison. Many years ago, Theodore Roosevelt observed that comparison is the thief of joy. When you compare yourself to your peers as you see them in public, when you compare your body, when you compare your career, your accomplishments, your family, your kids, your wealth, your maturity, when you compare yourself to the public version of your peers, it always leads to depression always leads to sadness. It always steals your joy. You always end up losing in that comparison. Why is that? Well, because the public version of your peers that you see in the church foyer, that you see at work, that you see in the community, that you see on Facebook is always better than reality. Always better than reality. Because when we're in public, what face do we present to the world? When you're here at church, when you're at work, when you're in the community, when you're on social media, when you're on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, we put out there for the world to see only the best stuff, only the ideal stuff. We don't put our dirty laundry out there. Let me give you an example. A couple years ago, it was time to take our Christmas card photos. Our kids were two years old. Well, here is the photo that ended up on the Christmas card. If you follow me on Facebook, this is what you would see. Beautiful kids, beautiful family. Only problem was this was one split second. Here's a few minutes later. Just a few. Yeah, I I just got kicked in the face by my daughter in, in that picture. That was the end of the photo shoot. That picture did not make it on Facebook. That picture didn't end up on the Christmas card. That's not what you see of us, even though that's what life looks like with two-year-olds most of the time. We don't share our dirty laundry in public. 
We don't share the hard stuff, the ugly stuff. We only share the really good-looking stuff, the perfect stuff, the sanitized stuff. The result of that is that when you compare your life as it really is, you as you know yourself, to the perfect version of your peers that you see in public and on Facebook, you always end up losing. You always end up losing. It's just a principle. You can bank on it. When you compare your life as it really is with the idealized fantasy you see of other people in public, you always lose. I call this the Claire Huxtable principle. How many of you grew up watching Cosby Show? Most of us, yes. Great show. Loved that show growing up. Love Cliff and Claire, these ideal parents. Love watching how they raised their five kids. But once we had children of our own, there was some point at which I realized that maybe Claire Huxtable was not the ideal role model for a young mom. It's Claire Huxtable, if you watch the show, you know she's, she's a full-time partner at her law firm. She is a perfect mother of five kids who never seem to need to go to daycare and are always very obedient. She is taking care of her husband and four grandparents, and she is perfectly dressed and made up in every scene. So moms, if, if you compare yourself to Claire Huxtable, you will lose every time. There's no real woman in all of human history who could compare favorably to Claire Huxtable. Why? Because she's a fiction. She's not real. She's not an actual person. She's a fantasy. If you compare yourself to Claire Huxtable, you're comparing yourself to a fantasy. And that's what we do every time we compare ourselves to our peers as we see them in the church foyer or in the community or on Facebook. We're comparing ourselves to an ideal fantasy that we can never live up to. The result is always sadness, depression, and discouragement. Okay, so what is it that is driving us, that is pushing us to compare ourselves to other people? It always, always leads to sadness. Why are we doing that? Why do we keep comparing ourselves to others? Well, it's because of a lie. A lie that we believe, that many of us believe, even if we don't realize that we believe it. The lie that drives this burden of comparison is that my success in life is based on how I measure up to my peers. That's how I know how I'm doing. If I measure up favorably to my peers, then that means God is pleased with me. He's smiling at me. He approves of me. But if I fall short of their example, then God is disappointed in me. Success in life is about measuring up to my peers. That is the lie that drives the burden of comparison. So now let's discover what's the truth that can set us free from that burden. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, we're just going to look at a a few verses, although the whole chapter, all of 1 Corinthians 12, is written to address this lie. So if you struggle with this burden of comparison, I encourage you this week to go back and read all of 1 Corinthians 12. We're just going to look at verses 14 through 18. Here's what Paul says. For the body is not one member, he's talking about the church, but many If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired." 
What Paul is saying is that in the church, in the body of Christ worldwide, every single member of the body of Christ is unique. That's the first part of the truth that God has for us who suffer under this burden of comparison. God wants you to understand you are absolutely unique. There there is no person who has ever been created in the history of all of humanity who is identical to you, who's been given your body, your soul, and your path in life to walk. You are absolutely and utterly unique and what that means, second part of this truth, is that there is no one on earth that you need to measure up to. Absolutely no one. There's no one who God made to live your life. So there's no one you can measure yourself against to know whether you are a success. God does not measure you against anyone else so you shouldn't measure yourself against anyone else either. We are all unique. Every one of us has been placed in the body by God for a particular purpose, for a particular role. God designed a a unique path for you to walk in life. Success in your life is defined by walking the path God made for you as a unique individual. It's not defined by anybody else's path. You don't need to look at anybody else. You don't need to worry about what anybody else is doing. All that matters is that you walk with God in the unique path he created for you. God doesn't want us comparing ourselves to anyone else. So let me give you a couple practical steps that can help you to remember these truths and to apply them to your life. Couple practical things. First thing that I would encourage you to do. If you don't already have this in your life, I I encourage you to have a few other mature godly Christians in your life who you know deeply. Few other people who you know them, not just the Facebook version of them, but as they truly are, warts and all. You you know their hangups, you know their struggles, you know their history. You see them as they really are and they see you as you really are. You do life together, real life together. Be vulnerable with those people. Be open with those people. Let those people speak into your life. Don't let everyone on Facebook speak into your life. Only a few get that privilege. The few that you know for real and that know you for real. So a few people, hopefully one of them can be a mentor, someone older to speak into your life than a few friends who can come alongside of you and know you deeply. You need a few people who truly know the real you. That's my first piece of advice for you. My second piece of practical advice for you is to be really careful about social media. Really careful. We're all on it, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all this stuff. We're all on social media. We need to be really careful. It can be a good tool. It can be useful. But it can also be incredibly dangerous. It can feed this obsession with comparing ourselves to other people. For me, it's actually not Facebook. It's Twitter. So I'll hop on Twitter and I'll, I'll see all these guys that I follow and a lot of them are, are what you'd call like celebrity preachers like a John Piper or Matt Chandler. And every time I hop on Twitter, I see they're invited to speak at another conference. They're traveling through another continent. They've just finished another book. They've just launched a new campus. All of these incredible victories these men are having. They, they don't post on Twitter all the junk, all the hard stuff, all the boring days, all the messes they create. None of that makes it on Twitter, only the victories. So every time I compare my life as I see it for real with their fantasy lives on Twitter, I come up short and feel depressed. So this week, actually preparing this sermon, the Lord convicted me and led me. What I did is I just broke up with all those guys. I just hit that handy little 
unfollow button. Just un- unfollow them all because I don't need to see all that stuff in their lives. I'd encourage you to do the same thing. If you need to stop using some form of social media or unfollow or unfriend those people that are causing you to struggle with comparisons, guess what? It, it's not mean to unfollow someone. It's not mean to unfriend someone because it wasn't a real friendship. It's just Facebook. <laughs> I actually, I have a relative who I love very deeply who I have hidden in Facebook because she's always posting pictures of the beach and the mountains where she lives in California. I don't need to see that. I, I don't need that. I live in College Station. I need to be content with that. So I just, I totally, I hid everything from her. You can do that. It's not a mean thing to do. You need to be careful with social media. It can be a great tool, but it can also be a great source of struggle and burden and slavery if you let it feed comparisons. Jesus wants to set you free from the burden of comparison. Second struggle, second burden that Jesus wants to set you free from is the burden of fear. The burden of fear. Most of us are are old enough to have seen this principle in life that as your responsibility level increases, so do the stakes for failure. So do the stakes for failure. So when I was a single man in college, if I failed, if I blew it, well, I hurt myself and I disappointed my parents, but there weren't a lot of other people hurt by that. But then I got a job. And, And once I have a job, if I fail, now I hurt the people who count on me at work, and then I got married, and now if I fail, I'm going to hurt my spouse too. And now I have kids, and, and now if I fail, I'll hurt my kids and maybe their kids. As, as a responsibility level increase, so do the stakes for failure. And for most people, that increase in the stakes of failure drives an increase in fear. You, you've all seen that. You, you had some friend in college who was fun-loving and carefree. Then they graduated, they got into the working world, they got married, they have kids, and now they are just burdened and weighed down by worries about all the things that could go wrong in the future. They worry about losing their job, they worry about the economy, they worry about their health, they worry about their kids. It's actually very easy to prove statistically. Institute, National Institute of Health tells us that there's 18% of American adults who are diagnosable that they have an anxiety disorder. Meaning not only do they suffer from anxiety, but it is all the time, constant. They cannot control this debilitating. You don't have to just have a disorder to struggle with anxiety or fear. About a third of Americans, by the most recent poll I saw, worry a lot that they're going to lose their job. It's more like a half of Americans worry a lot about health insurance or health care. It's a huge number of people who are dominated by worry and anxiety. Most of us know what that feels like. I remember the, the most clear, pressing time when I struggled with anxiety was the summer after my first year of seminary. I had just emptied my bank account, paying my tuition bill, and then the Discover bill arrived. I couldn't pay it. I, I had no money left, and I opened the Discover bill. It was more than I expected, and my heart started to take off, just to race, and I started to sweat. I could not sleep that night. I was in a panic, full-on panic, because I didn't know what I was going to do. How am I going to pay this bill? It just terrified me. Now, we read in John 8 that Jesus wants to set us free. He does not want us to be overwhelmed by fear or anxiety. So where is that burden coming from? When I'm overwhelmed by fear of the future, when I'm overwhelmed by anxiety, what lie in my mind is feeding that burden? Here it is. Here's the lie that feeds the burden of fear. The lie is that God is not powerful, wise, or loving enough to be trusted with my future. 
He's somewhat powerful, somewhat wise, somewhat loving, but not quite enough for me to entrust my future to him or the future of my kids to him. So I have to stay in control of my life. I have to make sure that everything works out. I can't entrust it to God. He's not powerful enough, wise enough, caring enough. What I need to do is anticipate everything that could possibly go wrong in the future and research it and plan for it and control all the variables because if I don't stay in control, my life is doomed. That's the lie that drives this burden of fear. So how do we overcome it? How do we escape from slavery to fear? Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus gives us truth that will help set us free from the burden of anxiety and fear. It begins in verse 25. I'll just read a little bit of our passage. Matthew 6 verse 25. Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin." Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Jesus is telling us a couple things here. A couple truths that can set us free from the the burden of fear and worry. The first truth he has for us is he wants us to understand. Our God is infinitely powerful, wise, and caring. He has more than enough power and wisdom and care to provide for your every need. How do you know that? Because Jesus takes the argument to its extreme. You want to know how far God's care extends to every bird on the planet and to every blade of grass on the planet. God sees it, knows it. He understands exactly what it needs. He provides it at just the right time. If God's care extends all the way down to every blade of grass, then it extends to you. You're covered. God has your back. He doesn't need your help. He's watching over you. He knows what you need better than you do. He understands exactly what you need every moment of every day. He has more than enough power to provide it, and he will always love you and care about you. God has all the wisdom, power, and care that you will ever need. That's the first truth that Jesus has for us in this passage. The second, fairly convicting one, Jesus wants us to understand worry never helps. Worry never helps. We forget that. We think that if I worry about this possible problem, I can anticipate every possible wrong, bad scenario and plan accordingly. No, Jesus doesn't want us doing that. No, plan accordingly, but, but don't worry. Don't give in to anxiety. It is never helpful. Worry and anxiety are pointless and crushing. They steal your freedom and your joy in life. Now, that's easy to say, but it's hard to actually practice. What do you do? When a panic attack strikes, what do you do when you feel anxious? What do you do when you feel fearful about something that could happen in the future? My advice to you would be a passage in Philippians. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Paul addresses this exact situation. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul encourages you when anxiety strikes, when you feel fearful, go to the Lord in prayer. Make your requests be made known to God. Make, just tell God exactly what's causing you to be afraid, what's causing you to be anxious. But do you notice, with, with the prayer, what, what should you include? Thanksgiving. I think that's the secret. Thanksgiving. You go to God on your knees, you tell him what you need, and then you spend 10 minutes listing off all the good things he's already given you. And maybe if you're having a hard time thinking of things, you open to the book of Psalms, or you open to the book of John, or you open to the book of Romans, and, and you read about what God has provided for you through Jesus Christ, and you just rehearse that to him. You, you speak that thanksgiving to him. And what that practice of thanksgiving does is build your confidence and dispel your fear. So when anxiety strikes, don't give in to it. Don't give in to worry. Get on your knees, go to the Lord, tell him what you need, and then spend 10 minutes just giving thanks. That will help you to overcome this burden of fear and find freedom in your life. Third burden that Jesus wants to free you from is the burden of guilt. The burden of guilt. I'm still a little bit amazed, even today, when my kids are four and a half years old, I'm still surprised that four and a half years ago, when my kids were just a couple days old, that the med at South College Station handed me my two children and said, go home. I'm still shocked at that. I I didn't know anything. I'd never done that before. And they, they clicked the seats into the car and they said, bye-bye. Are you kidding? I, I made so many mistakes in the first days of my kids' lives. I, I continue to make mistakes today. That's just parenting. We're making mistakes all of the time. And for many parents, that reality that they are constantly making mistakes, it weighs down on their shoulders with guilt. They, they go around just feeling guilty all the time. Look at all the opportunities my kids are missing out on because I don't know what I'm doing Look at what my mistakes I've made. Look at what sins I've committed. I yelled at my child the other day. They're going to be ruined. We walk around with all of this guilt. And sometimes it's for small things like that. Sometimes it's for really big things. Not just parents, but all of us have big things in our past that we really regret. Something dumb we did as kids that continues to haunt us today. Some relationship that we broke because we lied or we cheated. Some opportunity at work or at school that we blew. Some, something, some sin that we gave into that became a habit or, or addiction. We all have made mistakes that we deeply regret. And if that regret is not dealt with, it will grow into a guilt that will suffocate you. That will steal all the joy from your life. What I want you to know, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what I want you to know is that guilt is never God's will for your life. God will convict you. If you sin, then God will convict you. But here's conviction. Conviction is a temporary and specific feeling of remorse that's designed to lead you to immediate confession. So so God will convict you in your soul so that you feel guilty about something you did so that you will fall on your knees and acknowledge to God that was wrong. But as soon as you've confessed it, the conviction is gone. So if there is some failure in your past, some mistake, some sin that you've confessed and yet you still feel guilty for it today, you need to understand that guilt isn't from God. Never from God. He's not a God of guilt. It's not from God. It's from a lie. It's from a lie that is holding sway in your heart and in your mind that so many of us tend to believe, even if we don't realize it, the lie that drives guilt 
is the belief that some sins and failures are beyond what God will forgive or heal. Some things are just too big for God to to forgive. He's just not willing to forgive something that horrible. Or maybe he'll forgive it, but man, he can't heal it. He can't redeem it. You've blown it. Now his best for you is gone. His best for your kids is gone. The lie that drives guilt is this belief that there are sins and mistakes so big that God cannot forgive them or cannot heal them. Let me give you some truth that will help you to silence that lie and to find freedom from the guilt that weighs down on your shoulders. Two verses for you. The first truth and the first verse that I have. The truth is there is no sin God won't forgive. It's actually a lot of verses that I could use in the Bible, but I'll give you 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just the little sins. Not just the reasonable sins. Not just the accidental sins. But even the really big, horrible ones you've never told anyone about. When Jesus went to the cross to die for your sins, he took every sin upon himself, past and present, little and big, even the horrible ones you hope no one will ever know about. He took all of your sin upon himself and he died to pay the price for it all. So there is literally nothing you could ever do that God would not or could not forgive. That's the good news of the gospel. That when Jesus died on the cross, he died to pay the price for all of your sin so that God can now offer you forgiveness as an absolutely free gift. Free and unconditional. There's nothing you need to do to earn forgiveness. There's nothing you need to do to merit it. It's yours for free because Jesus earned it. He paid for all of your sins and all you need to say to God is thank you. Thank you, God, I believe. You sent your son to die for all of my sins, not just the little ones. And then raised him from the dead to to conquer the power of sin so that I could have eternal life and forgiveness as a free gift. I believe, yes, God. The moment you tell God you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, every sin you've ever committed and every sin you will ever commit is forgiven. No sin too big for God to forgive. That's the first truth God has for us who struggle with guilt. The second truth he has for us is that there is no failure he can't redeem. No failure he can't redeem. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. All things. It means if you love God, if you love God, then God is promising that he will use everything in your life, even the bad stuff and the messy stuff and the mistakes and the sins, he will use it all for your good and the good of your family. That's his promise. God is so big that that there is nothing that is beyond his power to use for good. That doesn't make your sins small, it makes your God big. He's so big, he's so powerful that he can use even the worst stuff in our life for surprising good. You haven't ruined your kids because God is big. He can take even your mistakes and, and bring about good you never expected in your life and in the lives of your kids. It's incredible freedom for those of us who struggle with guilt. Practically speaking, what do you do? When, when, you, when you have a, a, a memory that's triggered in your head, you remember something bad you did, you remember some sin, you remember some mistake you've made, and guilt wells up in your soul, what do you do with that guilt? Well, this is where scripture memory comes into play. 
God challenged you and me to memorize scripture because he knew we would have a hard time controlling our thought life. He knew there'd be moments when guilt would sink in and you would have a really hard time removing it from your head. And so he challenges us to memorize verses like these, like 1 John 1, 9 and Romans 8, 28. And when you feel guilt begin to play in your head, when you begin to remember that awful thing that you did or that mistake that you made, you stop and you rehearse scripture to yourself. You just meditate on that scriptural truth. You take control of your mind by directing it towards a positive thing. So I encourage you to memorize Romans 8, 28, 1 John 1, 9. When you feel guilty about something that you have already confessed, you remember that guilt's not from God. He wants me to rehearse these verses to myself and remind myself there is no guilt for those who have confessed their sins. No guilt at all. God wants to give us freedom from the burden of guilt. Fourth and final burden that Jesus wants to free us from today is the burden of busyness. I was talking to a friend of mine, a a mom of young kids. We were commiserating about our busyness, how it feels like we're always running from one thing to the next. And she said, great line, we need to put an end to the glorification of busyness. My first thought was, wow, that'll preach. So I asked her if I could steal it. She said, yes, here we are. My second thought was, wow, that's convicting. That is exactly right. That, that's what I am doing. When I live a life of constant busyness, then what I'm saying to the watching world, when an outsider looks at my life, what they see in me is that what I really glorify with my life is busyness. That's what I value because I'm constantly running from one thing to another. So what I must really care about is a state of busyness. When I am always busy, it says to the watching world that my value is determined by how much I do in a given day. Now, all of us are busy. Parents, we're incredibly busy, but you don't have to be a parent. We are all busy in this world. and In modern life, we're constantly running from one thing to the next. I I spent some time this week imagining what would it be like if someone from 200 years ago was able to come back today and observe our lives in the busy, frenetic pace that we live, I think they would conclude that we must be addicted to busyness. must be an addiction to us because we all run around like we are crazy busy. And and the really crazy thing is, is when we have five minutes when we don't need to do anything, when you're sitting in line waiting for something, what do we do? We pull out our phones and check our email because we always gotta be busy. We run from one thing to a next like we're addicted to busyness. Why is that? What is the lie in our minds that leads us to these lives of unhealthy busyness, to this addiction to busyness? Well, it could be actually any of the lies we've talked about so far. Could be any of these other burdens. Maybe it's because of comparison. You compare yourself to others, you come out short, so you drive yourself harder. Maybe it's fear. You you fear something going wrong in the future, so you drive yourself to prepare for any possible bad scenario. Maybe it's guilt. You can't get over your guilt, so you keep yourself busy so you don't have to think about it. If it's any of those lies that are driving you to busyness, then go back to the truths for for each of those lies to deal with it. But it could be a, a fourth lie that is driving you to insane levels of busyness. This is the one that's doing it for me. This is why I live a life that is too busy, that is unhealthy and unwise in its busyness. It's because I tend to believe this lie, that I am indispensable. That I am necessary. That I am essential in God's plans for my family and for this church and for our community. 
If God's going to steer the ship straight of Grace Bible Church, then I better be at the rudder because he needs me. He needs me to do my job. I'm indispensable to his plan. I can't just leave it to him. I got to stay at my post. I got to keep working because I am indispensable. That's a lie. That's a lie. Let me give you the truth that God has for us to help us battle this lie. Truth very simple. God wants you to understand you're useful. You are not indispensable. I am useful to my family. I am not indispensable to them. I am useful to Grace Bible Church. I am not indispensable to Grace Bible Church. The passage I would give you is from the book of 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 and 7. Paul reflects on his ministry, I mean, biggest ministry ever, preaching and building churches. He says, I planted Apollos watered, Apollos was one of his co-laborers, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. What Paul is saying, remember, this is Paul. The most spiritually gifted writer and, and apostle there is. He's saying that in all the ministry he had accomplished, all the churches that he had planted, all the scripture he had written, he was not indispensable. There was only one indispensable person at work in Paul's life, God. Only person who really mattered, God. Paul was useful to God. Paul accomplished things through Paul's life, but Paul was not indispensable. He was not essential. He was not necessary. And if you will believe that truth about yourself, it is incredibly freeing. You just go to God and and acknowledge, you know what? I am not indispensable. Neither are you. None of us are. We're not indispensable to our families, to our church, to our community, to our businesses. God doesn't need our help. He's God. He's got it covered. Doesn't need us. He can use us. We're useful to him. We're not indispensable to him. What do you do with that reality? Do you let that, that truth sink into your minds? What do you do if you found yourself driven to busyness because you believe this lie that you're indispensable? I'll give you a, a few practical steps. Um, one from my own life, because this is my big burden that I've been carrying. Uh, my practical step is that you guys won't see me much this summer. I preach a few times, but I'm going to be out a lot. Reason is because I've looked back over my schedule the last six years since we opened the doors at Southwood and I realized I have not come anywhere close to taking appropriate amounts of vacation or time off. Not, not even close. Why? Because I believed myself to be indispensable. For Southwood to grow, you need me, so I've got to be here. No, I don't. You don't need me. So this summer I'm going to try to rectify that and make up for some of the time that I have not rested, that I have not been still before the Lord. So I'm going to take some time off. I encourage you to try to do the same in your life. Is there some way you can take some extra time off to use your vacation, to get some rest, to go quietly before the Lord, to sit still in his presence? Maybe for you, just really practically speaking, maybe what you need to do this week is choose one thing to drop this summer to simplify your life and the life of your family. Maybe there's one event or activity you are planning on doing with your kids. Maybe you don't need to do. Maybe you just all need to chill out and rest. Maybe there's one project you were going to start at work that can be delayed. You don't have to start it right now. You can rest. Maybe there's a few extra days you can take off. Look for something practical you can do this summer to simplify your life and get even a little bit more rest. I encourage you to make a plan this week while the summer is young. Find one thing you can drop to simplify your life at least a little bit. So you can bring the busyness, ratchet it down, and get some more rest. There are so many burdens that we carry in life. Life is already hard enough, but we make it harder because we carry these burdens of comparison and fear and guilt and busyness around with us. 
All of us are carrying at least one of these. I'm sure everyone came into this room with one of these burdens on their shoulders. So what I encourage you to do this week is to take some time and reflect on what burdens you are carrying that God doesn't want you to carry. What of these four burdens are you carrying? When you identify the burden you're carrying, I encourage you to reflect on the lie. It's always some lie that drives us to carry burdens. What's the lie that you're believing? And then what's the truth? Reflect on the verse that, that, that I've given you for each of these burdens. Memorize that verse. Own it. Let it sink into your mind. And then spend some time in prayer. Jesus said he wants to set us free. He wants freedom for you. He doesn't want you to be burdened by comparison or guilt or fear or busyness. He wants you to be free. So spend some time this week reflecting on the truth of his word and praying for his help to set you free. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you came to set us free. We praise you and we thank you that our freedom came at the price of your life. You willingly sacrificed yourself on the cross so that we could be set free from sin and death and Satan. We praise you and thank you, Jesus, for paying the ultimate price to set us free. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that you raised your son from the dead and now you offer all of us that freedom as a free gift. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to merit it. It's ours for free if we simply say yes. I pray, God. For anyone in this room who hasn't received forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift, please help them to believe that freedom is theirs as a gift. For all of us who have received that gift, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live lives of true freedom. I pray that you would help us to see the unnecessary burdens that we are carrying in our lives and that you would open our eyes to see the lies that are driving us to carry those burdens. Help us to discover truth in your word that will set us free from those things that weigh us down. Lord, I'm I'm confident that every one of us in this room struggles to live the freedom that Jesus promised. Please help us to believe the truth of your word and to find freedom in Jesus Christ this week. I pray, Father, set us free. Help us to walk in freedom and in truth, all for the glory and renown of your Son, Jesus Christ, who made our freedom possible. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys, and happy Mother's Day.